Hi, I'm Daryl Urbanski, and welcome to the Best Business Podcast. My mission is to help create 200 new multimillionaire business owners. How? You'll do better when you know better. In my interviews, you'll hear from self-made millionaires, seven-figure business owners, authors, and world-class experts sharing how they did it so you can too without experiencing the same obstacles they did. When your life and your business grow as a result of what you're about to discover, please call me and tell me about it. The number to leave a voicemail is 1-888-844-GROW. That's 1-888-844-4769. Long distance charges may apply. Dial now to call me, connect, share your personal story of how my interviews have helped, or share your current challenges and frustrations so I can connect you with an appropriate course, coach, or help you if you connect. Now, if you like this interview, please share it with a friend you think will benefit. They'll appreciate it, and I will as well. You can also connect with me on social media. Look for Daryl Urbanski, D-A-R-Y-L, Urban Ski, U-R-B-A-N-S-K-I, and add me so we can be friends. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy what I've prepared for you right here, right now. Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining us. My name is Daryl Urbanski, your host as always. And today we are joined by a nationally recognized entrepreneur with 16 years of high-level experience in the financial services and advisory industry, Chris Noggle. Chris managed over $30 million in assets, specializing in alternative investments, retirement strategies, and wealth accumulation. Using his expert knowledge in finance, he has successfully bought, renovated, and sold hundreds of properties. Through his passion and success in real estate, Chris became co-founder and CEO of Flipout Academy, a real estate education company that coaches its students how to get results and create passive income through real estate. You can find Chris's book, The Private Money Guide, Real Estate Edition, Solutions to Finding Money, Where to Go, and How to Ask on Amazon today. And today, sorry, I've asked Chris to join us to talk about how to use money in real estate investing to overcome those initial hurdles everyone faced in their first three transactions. So, Chris, thank you so much for joining us. It's an honor and a pleasure. I know you have your own podcast, your own show you could be doing. How are you today? I'm doing great. Actually, fantastic this morning. Awesome. Well, it's good to have you here. Now, before we get into this, I do want to know a bit about, uh, ask you a bit about your background. So, before you got into financial services and real estate and all that, do you come from a family of entrepreneurs and and people in these fields, or, or you know, how did you get started? Absolutely not. Actually, I, I grew up in a lower, lower, lower middle class family. You know, my mom was the one that raised me. Uh, dad and mom got divorced at a young age. My dad was an alcoholic for most of my life, and. You know, it's just kind of always, if I wanted something, I went out and worked for it. That's just the way that things were. There was no extra money to really do anything. And no one in my family was an entrepreneur. My my dad was a factory worker. My mom ran a daycare at the house just to, you know, be able to raise me. That's kind of, that's the humble beginnings. Wow. Well, no, but that's awesome. So then how did you even get started? So it was, I was, as growing up, you know, I was kind of an ambitious kid. I always wanted to be a pro athlete. First, I wanted to be a pro BMX rider, and then I wanted to be a pro skateboarder. And then I remember uh, my early teens, my, I got so fixated on snowboarding, the only thing I wanted was to be a pro snowboarder. And that kind of stuck with me. So as I was going through, I needed money to travel. I needed money to do things. And you know, I, I couldn't just go to mom or dad and, and ask for money. So I had to start work. So at 14, mm. I worked on a farm, and uh, I loved it. I loved every minute of it. I rode my dirt bike to work every morning, and then uh, we'd go over. We had a little dirt bike track at my friend's, and that's what we did. So by the age of 16, I wanted a car, so I got a big boy job. I started working at a restaurant, and <laughs> you know, it seemed like a great thing in the beginning, but 
actually wasn't so great because I got degraded so badly every day I went to work. The mm. owner of the restaurant just every single day made me feel useless. I mean, it was bad. It was, I didn't, I, I never really knew it when I was in the moment, but you know, it got so bad that every day I'd come home from work, I'd, I, I felt just depressed. I, yeah. I felt like I couldn't do anything right. And my grades went down in school. My mom saw what was happening. And, and a unique thing happened one day, I, I guess I, I had just had enough. I came in and he started in on me and I said, I just said, I quit. And it was an important day because that was the, that moment when I quit trading hours for dollars. And I remember mm. I came home. I thought my mom was going to be mad and she wasn't. And I said, mom, I want to start a clothing line and I want to, I want to start it in the basement and I want to use it, you know, to help me travel with snowboarding. And, and that's exactly what I did. That was the, the time when I found fat clothing company, P H A T. And, uh, you know, I, I began doing that. That's, that's kind of where it. it began. I love it. And so what happened with, with fat clothing company? So over the next year, I, I mean, I started making clothes and I, I'd bring them to school. I'd sell them at school. I'd, I'd make a dozen t-shirts. I'd sell them. I'd then make two dozen t-shirts and then, you know, two dozen t-shirts and a, and a dozen hats. And that's kind of how it started. And while I was traveling around trying to become a, an amateur snowboarder at this time, because that, that's kind of what I was after, I would bring my clothing with me and I made order forms and little brochures and down on my, I don't even remember what kind of computer, a Commodore or something like that. And <laughs> I, I, I would bring them out to the shops as I was doing, you know, my traveling. And I would just go in and I'd, I'd meet up with the guys, fellow snowboard guys. And I'd ask, hey, can I sell my clothing in your store? You know, if I do it on a consignment. And, and that, this kind of grew. And as I was traveling more and more, can, can I, you, can I got Can you clarify what consignment store. is for the people that are listening? What's consignment? Sure. Sure, because I was so new, you know, these guys at first when I try to sell them the clothing, they wouldn't want to just pay me for the clothes. So what I'd actually have to do is I'd have to leave my clothes there, kind of on an IOU, and then as they sold them, I would yeah. stop back in on my next travels, and they would just write me a check for whatever sold. So I, I'd write yeah. down how many, you know, shirts I left, hats I left, and then the next time I was in, they, I'd say how many, you know, were left, and they would write me a check for the difference. So consignment is basically just the, yeah, just... You didn't get paid for it. You kind of just had to work on the honor system. Yeah. Mm -hmm. and, and you know what else I was doing, which was really unique. And I often forget about this. I was, I was doing a lot of like back then hardcore was big and raves were big. So I was going in and setting up booths. And I remember I would give the, the promoter of the event, I don't know, whatever, 20% of everything I sold. And I just would have a booth and that became kind of my night gig because I didn't want to work for anyone anymore because I, I had had such a terrible experience with that, that mm -hmm. restaurant job. I would do mm -hmm. anything it took to not have to work for anybody. So, you know, yep. literally that's <laughs> what happened. And I would go to these concerts and I would set up a little booth and I'd sell a hundred bucks worth of shirts, but that hundred bucks was, you know, that was plenty for me to live on. I didn't need a lot. And that was like the beginning. And, and I did that for a year and then some unique things happened, you know, after that and things grew. I mean, they really grew and took off and, I started making more and more stuff and my mom, you know, started helping me a little by sewing samples and we actually started manufacturing clothing. <clears throat> and I remember I hired, uh, I hired a seamstress and I can't remember her name, Kathy, I think it was. This is, you guys got to remember, this is when I was 16, maybe 17 years old. And, uh, you know, I would hire a seamstress and she would make a bunch of samples and I would, you know, go out, get orders for this jacket and then I'd come back and she'd make them and they were literally custom made. So yeah. I didn't realize that me, I was just, this is just the only way to do it back then because I didn't know what I didn't know. So 
yeah, I would just, I would just sell this clothing and come back and rush to get it all made and fill the orders. And, and it, it got to be when I was like 17, like mid 17, I had three seamstresses working for me. I had lots of orders going. I wasn't like knocking it out of the park, but you know, I was making for, a living for, for doing your it age, yeah, all for along. Your, for your age, it's very respectable. <clears throat> yeah. And, and all along I was chasing my dream. You know, I was literally, I was making a lot of progress in the snowboard world. I was winning contests. I was, I was getting invited to bigger contests. So that was like my fulfillment. So really the clothing line at that time was just, it was my, my lifestyle driver. That was the only thing that, that provided the income so that I could travel to these snowboard contests. And then I remember I started, uh, I got connected with this guy, Steve, and he was a great guy. He had a, a place at the local flea market. Now I know when you think of a flea market, you think of, Oh, that's kind of you know shady. But back then this flea no, market man. was yeah. massive. It was massive. Yeah. Like it was called the Walden flea and it was like the place. It's, so I started going there and he had a booth selling clothing. So I started working for him selling clothing and in exchange for me giving my time, helping him sell, he allowed me to sell my clothing at his booth. And I started mm. selling a lot of clothes. Like I had this one shirt called the lesson and it's so funny. I wish, I wish I could show it to you, but I still make shirts and I've got an 8,000 square foot facility now here where we do events and everything. If I walk out into the event center, I can look right over here and I have that shirt. I remade it, the lesson. And it was about when I was 16, I was, you know, a skateboard snowboard kid. And all my friends were going off to be football, you know, they, football, where all the girls were. They chased the girls. And right. I remember I watched my friends change. I watched them go from like my friends who were skateboarders and snowboarders. And all of a sudden they were back then we called them preps, but they were, you know, just, they completely changed their entire image, their entire way of living because of, you know, their football players now. And I, I remember I was like the anti football. So mm. I made a shirt and the shirt's all about the shirt's all about this little boy who kept changing himself to please other people first, you know, when he was had a deformity, but then he, he cut his, his finger off and it just went through this whole thing where he cut his finger off and he cut his arm off and he did this all to, you know, it, to please other people. And at the end, everybody was still mad at him because when he cut his arm off and there's more to it, but when he cut his arm off, he couldn't wave anymore. So everybody was mad. He couldn't wave. And his little boy learned what an important lesson he, that he should have never friend. changed himself <laughs> to please people. Right. So this shirt literally, <laughs> you know, in, in, the, in today's world, it would have been viral, but you know, I sold hundreds and hundreds of this shirt at the flea market. And during this time I started like, talking with Steve and we got this idea, we need a store. We need our own place. So we got the idea to come up with fat man board shops, you know, P-H-A-T-M-A-N because I, I was fat clothing and, and man. And all I needed to do to open this store was find $70,000. And, and I remember the biggest driving force for this was all these shop owners that I sold my clothing to. I remember they were like, they had the light, right? To me, that was like the ultimate. They lived the life. They went to their shop every day. They sold skateboards and snowboards and they communicated with people like me. And it was the lifestyle business. And then every day they'd go snowboarding. And I mm. wanted that. And I came up with the business plan. I went to my local college and I found out how to write a business plan. And, and I remember I was so blind to how re the truth of the, the matter was is I just went out there and I just started asking people for $70,000 and showing them my business plan. And I was so excited about it. I figured everybody would be, but that wasn't what happened. You know what? The reality of what happened is I heard no, no way. Absolutely not. And, and hell no. And, 
it got to the point where I literally thought that I was, I was, it was a pipe dream. It was never going to happen. And you remember, I, I told you how influential my mom was in my life. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. as this was all going on and my father had like said, no, you shouldn't do this. That's a stupid idea. Come work at the factory. Well, I ended up mailing the single for Cats in the Cradle to my dad. And I didn't speak to him for almost two years because of this whole period of time where he wouldn't support me in this. But my mom, who had no money, had nothing. I mean, barely kept a roof over our head. She never got to chase her dreams for various reasons. And she didn't want to see her son. You know, she didn't want to see my dreams die. So she literally said, well, what we did is we found a bank that would lend me $70,000, an SBA-backed loan, which is just for those listening, it's a, it's a government-backed loan. They're still around. But back then, it was like a new pilot program. So this SBA-backed loan, the bank said, okay, well, we can get you approved for an SBA-backed loan. However, we need collateral. Now, again, I'm 17 years old. I have no idea what collateral means. And maybe some, some of you don't either, but collateral is, you know, if they're going to give me 70 grand, they want something in exchange that secures that $70,000, something like a house or, you know, bank accounts that they can like freeze, you know, that secures it. So that's what they wanted. And I'm like, well, I have a 1986 Buick and I've got a baseball card collection and I guess I can put my snowboards up for collateral. Like, is that enough? <laughs> and, and it wasn't. So my mom saw this whole thing happen. And, and the next thing she did is she said, you know, I will put our house, which she got the house in the divorce and it had roughly about $75,000 worth of, of equity. Oh, and she put goodness. the house up for collateral. Now, back then I was just a kid, right? Chasing my dream. And today I look back at that and I realize, like, what a foolish thing. Like, you know, I, I, I'll never forget it. I mean, my mom is my unconditional one. You know, my whole life I've been searching for that one person who could like catapult me and there she was the whole time. You know, she's that wow. one person too, who's always supported me and everything. But she put her house up on the line so her punk 17-year-old kid could chase his, his dream of having this snowboard shop. And snowboard shops weren't even a thing back then. They weren't even like big, but I did it. And that was uh, November of 1994, Fat Man Board Shop opened in the Lockport Mall. And that was the, that was the beginning of it. Wow. And that was everything. Like, it's not like your mom just gave the house, but she gave everything. Like, there must be oh, everything. enormous everything. pressure. Did you realize the pressure on you to make sure it worked? <clears throat> uh, at first, I didn't because I was just so in, like, fantasy world that this was actually happening. I was so into getting the store open. But after the store opened and things were going, you know, because at that point, I just thought everything was going to be rosy. Seventeen. At this time, I was maybe yeah. eighteen because it, there was some time that went by. So I'm eighteen, you know, and I'm just I'm snowboarding, I'm skateboarding, and like I got this store coming, and you know, I just thought everything was going to be perfect. And the day we open, all the money's going to flow in. Well, when we opened, we actually did have a, a phenomenal, you know, takeoff. And Steve was my partner in it back then, so things were going good. But the pressure started becoming reality, you know, like a year into it when I realized, wow, there's going to be hard times. Summers are going to be really slow. You know, Christmas, you're going to make a ton of money. Back to school, you're going to make a ton of money. And then all of a sudden, like, there's these dead times. And there was many of many of nights where I, I fell asleep on cardboard boxes in the back room crying, not knowing how I was going to get through the next day. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, the, the pressure became real because think about that. I'm an 18-year-old kid that if I don't make this work, mom loses her house. Like, yep. I, I didn't, yep. I didn't, I very quickly realized the pressure that was on me. Yep. I feel your pain. I went through a similar story, but I was, 
18 turning 19 when I was looking for financing and a friend's father agreed to give me $50,000. And I needed a quarter of a million dollar loan from a bank to renovate a house for a youth hostel I was going to build with like solar pa uh, passive solar heating and solar panels and wind and all this sort of stuff. And I just walked away from it because I just, I chickened out. Like I, it, I realized what I was walking into. So I fully understand, like, like you said, like you fell asleep on the cardboard in the back office sometimes, like crying, like, what am I going to do? And your mom gave you everything, like the gravity of that was so real to me. So I get that. So what happened? Well, I mean, I, there wasn't really any bad stories. Five years went by. We paid that SBA back loan off. I had a raging party at my mom's. We almost went to jail. Uh, it, I mean, that was the reality. I was, I went on to be a pro snowboarder. So, you know, at this time I was literally the, I was living my dream. I was truly living my dream. I lived and breathed my stores. They were everything that was like, you know, it was a true lifestyle brand. I was the store. The store was me. I had my, my friends working for me and, and everything we did, you know, was We'd go to the store and work just like those guys I saw when I was 16 that ran these stores. I'd go to work and then we'd go snowboard after, or we'd go skateboard after, or maybe we'd go to a trade show in California and we'd, you know, we'd learn to surf. So we'd surf and it was just this lifestyle kind of, you know, I don't want to call it entourage because, you know, entourage, he had all that money, but a lot of people can relate. You know, he had his crew. Well, I had mm -hmm. my crew and, mm -hmm. and my crew was filming me when I was snowboarding. It was just, we all believed we were all drinking the Kool-Aid, if you will. We just mm -hmm. were living the dream. And this went on for, for many years. I mean, it went on literally all the way up until early 2000s. I had four stores going. I was traveling the world snowboarding. I was making my mark. I was literally showing up in magazines and videos. And, and I wasn't making a ton of money. I, I just want everybody to be clear with that. So Right. So I you was were living your dream. Leveraged. You didn't need to be a millionaire because I, you had everything you wanted. No. No, the best thing that was going on in my life, I think I took a salary of 250 bucks a week and my business, Batman, paid for my truck. And I had this really cool, I mean, t by today's standards, you guys will laugh, but back then that was like, <laughs> I, I might as well have had a Ferrari. I had a Chevy ZR2, like that jacked up S10. So I had okay. one of those and I used it to pull our ramps around. And it was like, it was the perfect vehicle for me at that time. And I, I loved everything about it. I was still living at home. So I still lived with mom and you know, it just everything was great. And then in early 2000s, I had brought Steve back into the business because he had moved out to California, but then he came back in and we had four stores going and we just opened this new like boutique store, real high end boutique. And I'll never forget if you guys remember when the planes hit the tower, you know, in the early 2000s, I remember listening to that on the way to work and being like, holy crap, what, what does this mean? Well, what it meant was business was going to go down and uh. business went down a lot. I mean, over the next two years, business just kept going down and down and down. And I got pinched and I, you know, it started getting pressure because I couldn't make my, I couldn't make ends meet. I couldn't get the bills paid and I had to make some changes. And, you know, at that point, it came to this breaking point. I, I had been self-employed all the way up to this point. I, I don't remember how old I was. I was probably in my, what, early 20s and early 2000s, whatever it was, snowboarding. And I had to, I had to go get a job. And I remember thinking, I, I even remember, like, my friend was a pizza delivery guy. And I'm like, well, how much money do you make? And he said, how much you made? And I'm like, yeah, I, that could pay. That would allow me to not take the 250 and then I could, you know, pay for the truck and, I could do that. So I almost started delivering pizzas. But what happened is I sent my resume out to financial companies and they, they started calling me 
and I got interviews, you know, and I, I didn't have a suit. My grandma took me out and got me a suit. I had no concept of this world. I was just a punk snowboarder. Like to me, work was, you know, board shorts, flip flops and a t-shirt in the summer. And now I'm like putting a suit on and going to these interviews and it was nerve wracking, but I got my, I got my first job with a, a financial company. I landed at New York life. And I remember I, I went through the, I blew the first interview off because I remember I'm oh. like, I don't want to sell life insurance. I'm not going to, I, if I'm going to do this, yeah, I want to be Wall Street, out. man. I want to, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I want to be selling stocks. I want to be just like, you know, Douglas on, on Wall Street. I, I want to be doing that. And the reality is that I, I landed at New York Life because they had an investment division and I, all I had to do was kind of make my way through. But what happened next was what I was, I, I even looking back, I still can't believe this happened is I actually loved it. I actually liked it because I was actually going out meeting people and I was, I was helping them and I built great clients and I started getting into it. And, and I was the type of kid at that point, like I knew nothing but work, right? You had to grind, you had to work. There wasn't, you know, an hour, there wasn't nine to five. So to me, like having a business was okay. My store opened at 10 and it closed at nine. I worked 10 to nine. Like, and if somebody comes in and works, maybe I go skate for a little while and I come back and I close the shop. That was my life. So I just had a work ethic, you know, and I had a work ethic from the farm. So I just outworked every single person at this firm. I went in early. I did what everybody was unwilling to do. And my first year in at New York Life, I had made 74000 bucks. Never in my life have I made 70 or had I made $74,000 no, at that no. point. And I'm like, whoa. I, and you know, <laughs> have my stores going. We, we had consolidated the stores. So now we had uh, two locations in a boutique. So that's, that was the stores. I was still snowboarding professionally, but now I like had, now I had this cash cow. So I'm doing it. And you know, the funny thing that happened though, is as I got busier and busier in the financial world, I did, I excelled, I studied, I got all my certifications, my licenses. I became a a true financial advisor selling stocks, bonds, mutual funds, and, and all that. It wasn't just life insurance, but I was still doing it all. And, And I was like, literally like I was the star in that firm. Like I was, I was number always, you know, number one or three in the company and I'm in my young twenties. So I'm 25, 26, making a bunch of money. Things are just (laughs) awesome. And I slowed down. I learned something here. And and what I learned is because I was going so heavy into the financial world, I couldn't spend as much time in the store. So I had to take my friends, you know, my entourage that was with me the whole time. And I had to empower them and say, okay, guys, you know, can you guys run the shop and do some cool things? And, oh yeah, Kyle, you like doing those videos. Why don't you, you know, come up with, make some videos, make a, let's make a skate Uh. movie. And so they literally, by me empowering them and giving them incentive with bonuses, they literally took my store to levels I never could have taken it to because I was, when you work in your business, you're so caught up in you being able to do everything better than everybody else. By me going out of the business, I was able to start working on the business, not in the business. And my business took off. So that, that was kind of the next step and, and it was unique and kind of how that dynamic happened. But, uh, you know, I was still the same guy, even though I was, you know, making a bunch of money as the financial advisor, all that allowed me to do is I bought my uncle's house. It became the, the skate snowboard party pad. You know, we had the in ground pool. We would jump off the roof into the pool. We literally in the winter would set up like ramps from the garage roof down onto the Oh my God. Just looking back, I can't believe no one died, but like you ever see the, you ever see the show jackass with Bam Margera? You ever watch jackass or like any of those? Dude, that was, that was us. 
That was our life. Like we had ramps in the driveway. We had ramps going into the pool. We, we were, Oh, it was just wild. And that was like what <laughs> the money that I made just, it just su- further supported this snowboard lifestyle. You know, instead of, uh, you know, having to drive to, to a contest, I was flying, you know, and, and, and now I had sponsors because now I really started to get noticed. So I was making money. I had travel budgets. This was still a really cool time in my life, but it was different from a pressure standpoint because I had to perform as an advisor. I had responsibilities that I, not that I didn't with the stores, but I had different responsibilities. So it was just a different dynamic. And and this continued on like this. I, I, and I had opened a bunch of like uh, test pilot stores. I had opened a skate park, actually two of them, because that was a big dream. I always wanted to open a skate park. We didn't have parks back then. So I did that. I opened like a women's store and, you know, some, they, they both failed, but whatever, I did it. And I don't know, it was, that's what I did. I did it all the way up until, you know, 2008. And in 2008, do you want me to just keep going into it and just kind of tell you what happened? Yeah, you can. I I just want to dive in a little bit because uh, there's a couple of things you mentioned. Like you've had a lot of ups and downs. You talked about a couple of businesses didn't work out. And I mean, we all have those, right? Uh, Success is many fathers and failure is an orphan. Nobody wants to claim that. But what were some of the biggest challenges that you felt you had and how you overcame it? Like, I love how you mentioned that you figured out something because of the limitations you had, you had to empower others. I actually even wrote that down. When you learn to empower others and empower them to grow your business and you worked on your business versus being the person in your business, that things just went to a totally new level. Can you talk about maybe some of the other kind of ahas you had in either your successes like that or even some of the failures that you had? What were some of the things that have really helped for shape you and develop you into the, the entrepreneur you are today? Oh, that's a great question. And, and you know, we're going to get to some of the failures because if you guys didn't catch that, I said, you know, and by 2008, so I'm going to come back to that. But, you know, just some of the other aha moments I had is, I was building this brand and I didn't even know I was building a brand, right? It was fat man. It was me. Like I was fat man. Fat man was me. And, and everything mm. we did was just about the lifestyle. Like all of our mm. ads were like these grassroots hand cut out ads. And it was just this, it was just this movement. And it truly like, it was a movement. It really was like, even in the industry, the skate and snowboard industry, fat man was known as being like the core skate snowboard shop we Mm. we were drinking the kool-aid we were literally living the life and we didn't even realize it but we were growing and our success was growing not so much because we were such a great shop and we were a great shop but it was more because our customers wanted the lifestyle that we portrayed they wanted to live the life we were living at that point and and to us like that wasn't even realization right we didn't even realize that we just realized we were living like the, the dream. We were just doing what we loved to do. And because of that, all of our customers, like they just wanted to be part of this. And that spawned a lot of new things. And that's where a lot of the, the people that were running the stores came from is we would, we had a skateboard and a snowboard team and the, the skateboard and snowboard team, we had like an A team and a B team and our team, our A team, like it consisted of pro skateboarders and our snowboard team, including myself and consisted of, you know, a bunch of my friends who were, just as good as I was that I brought up into the sponsorship realms and they were ams. Some of them went on to be pro snowboarders. So the, I guess the aha moment was we were creating, you know, today there's so much talk about build that your personal brand, we were creating a brand without even knowing we were creating a brand and, and everything we did 
everything, we started making all of our own brand. We came up with our whole line of clothing, Fat Man Clothing. But Fat Man Clothing wasn't put Fat Man on a shirt. Fat Man Clothing was like, tell a story through art on a shirt and just put really small because we were really into minimalist. Like anything that had Fat Man on it had it super small. The main thing was like the the image, the 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 lifestyle piece. And mm-hmm. we had this whole movement. And I bet you any money, and I, I don't know, but between our skateboards, our jackets, our, our T-shirts, and everything that we branded, I bet you we sold hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of just Fat Man branded clothing. And we literally were selling Fat Man branded clothing to other skate parks. And we, I, I'm, I was, I knew what was happening, but I just loved it so much that I just kept doing it. And the hardest thing for me was I was at, at this point, I was kind of at this crossroads where I wore a suit every day to the financial firm, but in my, my car, I had, you know, a bag, which had all my like shop stuff. So I'd come to the shop to work and I'd go back in my office and I'd strip the suit and I'd put the, the clothes on, I'd put a beanie on. And it was almost like Superman kind of, (laughs) kind of just like, I had like these two identities and I was caught because then there was this middle ground of like, okay, well, when I go out to eat, you know, and I'm going to be at a place where, you know, I'm going to see my clients, but then I'm going to see all my skate buddies. Like, how do I dress? You know, like, what do I, what do I wear? So I was at this weird crossroads of like, do I dress up? Do I dress down? So I almost kind of at this point morphed like skateboard wear with, like dress wear. So I kind of came up with my own style and people like really took note of this and they wanted it. So the store like actually changed like the way that we were selling clothes, which went from like your standard t-shirts. And we started selling like dress up button, button up shirts, you know, and these were skate brands, but they were like the higher end level of the skate brand. So we started this whole like dress, dressier movement. You know, when we were out skating, we weren't wearing t-shirts anymore. We were wearing like button up dress shirts. You know, dressed, and like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was, You're dressed to impress. Yeah, so it was kind of this cool little movement, and that movement kind of flushed through the whole industry, and it, it kind of just became a thing. And so that was, I guess, I, I could go deeper into it, but that's some of the neat things that were happening at that time. And can, I don't know. I was just, again, speak, I was still kind of just in La La Land. Can you just talk a little bit? Because what you're describing is a lot of people would define it as culture. Like you developed a culture with rituals and with oh. like ethos. And people had to make personal sacrifices, whether it was they had to get injured and get up again, or they had to, you know, cough up some cash to get away for the weekend because it was the weather was right. Like, you know, like there was there was investment in this. These people, like it was a movement because, and there was a culture behind it. And your product was part of the culture, and that's that's the type of marketing that we don't hear about as much because it's it. I don't think it's as easy as ones and zeros, like you said. Like it was about art. It was about the lifestyle and the art. And there's even kind of this improvisational part of it, it sounds like, where you're talking about, like, I don't think this was a new thing for you to, to develop new clothing style based on your personal needs since you had the store. I think the whole, it was always kind of an improv, all the products you made and what kind of you put on the t-shirts and that it was, it was always, is that, is that accurate? Would you agree or? It's a hundred percent accurate. And you know what the strangest thing is, is, you know, I do interviews like this all the time. I speak on stages across the country and, and I do podcasts almost on a daily basis. And I, I never have anybody allow me to go back and go as deep into this as you are. And it's literally 
like it's taking me back to a place that I almost had forgotten about. So <laughs> what you just said about the culture, like, and how we had created this culture, like you couldn't be more true to what we did. We literally mm. had created our, our entire culture and our culture wasn't just within the store. Our culture spread through the skate park, through all the skate parks, through all the things that we touched and all the events that we traveled to. We had a team a culture, if you will, our team was our culture that when we went to a contest, it wasn't just me anymore. It was my team. You know, it was the fat man team and we were a force to be reckoned with. We won every contest. Then we, we did the skateboard team and we had all the best skaters because when you create a culture, and this is so important for everybody listening to this, because this is so true in today's business world and today's, you know, elements, this couldn't be more true and you're going to see more of it. But when you create a culture and you portray and you live the lifestyle that other people want, they will basically almost like a magnet be attracted to you and they will come on. And like you had mentioned, like they will follow you. Okay. They will follow you there on their own nickel. They will literally buy plane tickets on their own nickel just to travel. And you don't even know what's happening because they're just, mm-hmm. they're not like, Hey, I'm going to, I'm going to go there. They're, they know where you're going. They know the tour that you're on. And guess what? You show up and they're like, hey, man, how'd you get here? Oh, you, oh, you flew? Great. That's awesome. But at that time, we were just like, that was just our lifestyle. That's what we did. So mm. we just had this whole group that followed us. And that fueled the stores. That fueled our clothing line. That fueled mm. the skate park. That fueled everything we were doing. And at this point, like when I was you know, in the, heavy in the financial world, so this was pretty close to the 2008 time, at this point, like we were making money, you know, the stores combined were probably just a smidgen over a million dollars in sales per year. I didn't really take much of a salary. I took a small salary, but I paid my guys really well. And I had a really lucrative bonus program for my managers and my, mm. my heads of the departments, because if they built their division, you know, cause like I had a manager for the skate team. I had a manager for the snowboard team. I had a store manager I had a, a clothing line designer, you know, who made all the, the designs for the clothes, who was the artist, Jen, and all these people were incentivized. And, and I, hey, I didn't know that this is just like how business worked because I wasn't, I was a businessman, okay, but I wasn't mm-hmm. a businessman from Harvard. I wasn't a businessman with a college education because nowhere in my story did you hear that I, I was highly educated, right? I wasn't. I went to right. college for a year and a half and I did very well, but it wasn't my calling. I learned everything I'd learned just by doing it, by failing forward. Because believe me, as good as everything sounds up to this point, there was a lot of failures and there were a lot of learning lessons because of doing something. Oh, that didn't work. You know, you Uh, failed uh, forward. uh. So, and that's just kind of how we did it. But that culture element of what we had, that was everything. And that was what did that's what built everything the financial world literally was just the engine it was the machine that provided the money to further that that culture to allow us to literally have a house with an in-ground pool that allowed us to have like audis that you know and back then i was a single guy so let's be honest like you know i had the audis and the audis brought the girls to the parties it it really truly did and that's that was part of the culture it was just this lifestyle culture that we had that was the basis of it all was fat man board shops. That was the everything. So, yeah, I love, I love that you it. brought that up. And I love that you're yeah. allowing me to go this deep back into my, my journey to kind of where I'm at today, because I haven't been able to talk about this in a long time. <laughs> well, I think it's incredibly valuable because you can't know who, who you're becoming 
or we can't know who you are today unless we know where you've been. And I, there's just so many lessons and through it. I mean, that's the whole point of this. And I, I have some other big ahas, like you paid your team well and you had awesome bonuses in, places for, in place for managers, plus everyone was incentivized. And I love that. And, and the other part, which you talk about is, again, is the culture. Like you talk about how the money, it wasn't about the money. It's like it, there was a greater why for the company and the business. And that's part of what helped you create the community and bring everyone together was there was like a rallying point. And the money was just like, it was like a plane, like fuel for a plane. Like the money wasn't the goal. Like the, the goal of a plane ride is to go somewhere. The goal of the plane ride is not to accumulate all the fuel you can, you know. And so for you, that's kind of it. Like you were just trying to take this somewhere. You were on this journey, living this life, being this guy, developing these skills, like honing your craft. And the store kind of just became a bit of like a treehouse, it sounds like, for people to live and find a little nook and cranny and that we're trying to live the same lifestyle. And everybody was just helping each other live their dream. And because you enabled others, you got to reap the greatest benefit. You know, I, I was in Africa for a time and I saw four distinct levels of society when I was there. And the lowest level, they were uneducated, unskilled, uh, often like drug or alcohol dependent, low motivation, like bottom of the barrel. I hate to say it, but it's just what I saw. Like I just didn't see the time, the nine weeks I was there, I didn't see these people do much productive. So they were the bottom. The, bottom, the next level up were people who had jobs. They were doing well for themselves. They were educated. They were clean cut. You know, they had good discipline and they went to their jobs. But in Africa where it was, the employers had the upper hand because there was like, you know, 2,000 people for one job. The competition was fierce. So you didn't necessarily have like upper hand in your, you know, it wasn't a position that you're, that was a specialization that you had the upper hand on your boss where they needed you. So they did okay, but they didn't get paid that well, right? The conditions, working conditions weren't that great. The next level up were people who were self-employed. And these were people, they used to call them boda bodas, which were dirt bikes, because they, they didn't, couldn't afford a whole car. So instead of a taxi, you would just hop on the back of someone's dirt bike and they take you. So these boda boda drivers, and they'd wake up and it's like all day they're hunting for people that need a ride, and, you know, and they can make what they can keep type thing. But the person I noticed that did the best were people who enabled others and enabled the dreams of others. For example, the guy who owns a fleet of Boda Boda bikes and maintains them and provides training on how to be a successful Boda Boda driver for the other guys. And now he has a team of people, and through empowering that team and incentivizing them and not trying to take the whole pie, but trying to understand that 1% of something bigger is, can be a lot, right, than 100% of nothing. And empowering these people and being part of you know, he's an enabler. And he also has, like, lines of defense, like in a war. Like, he's not the front line of defense, you know. It's, that's why I think it's such a great idea to have everyone should have a business because you almost built, you build a moat around yourself with people that you care about and you're feeding them and their families, you want to protect them. But you also know at the end of the day you've, you've built, like, a little hill for your family to sit on, hopefully. You know, that the, the zombie horde comes, you won't be the first to go, so to speak. And anyways, I just love how you talked about that. Like, it was just a really cool set up, you, there was a lot of creative input from other people, a lot of empowering other people. It was, you know, you, you set up and it just ran type thing, I think is another thing. What I mean by that is... It, it really something. did. Yeah, like it just, it, from these hours, it operated whether you were there or not. And I think that that's really powerful because a lot of people forget that. When you look up entrepreneur in the dictionary, it says a person who organizes a business or businesses. It doesn't say the person who unlocks the door, stocks the shelves, turns the lights on, you know, does inventory, uh, clicks the cash, you know, deals with the refund request, does the taxes, you know, mops the floor. Like, that's not it. That's not, that's not what the business owner, that's not what it is. So um, I just think it's a great story. So what, what are some other mistakes that you feel you see, like, people you work with or other entrepreneurs making now on the other side of this coin? Well, well, let, 
everything I've kind of talked about has kind of been like living the dream, right? So now let me mm. talk about the reality of what set in. So mm. by 2008, in 2008, I was on top of the world. I was crushing it in the financial world. I was, I was probably making 250, 300,000 in the financial world. I had my stores going on. I, at that point, like I was at probably almost the, the pinnacle of my snowboard career. I was riding for companies like Monster and, and later Red Bull and I was actually getting paid. Now I was filming with some of the biggest film crews. I was making videos with guys that later went on to win the Olympics. I mean, I was oh. literally at that level with snowboarding, but I also, so I'm at that level with snowboarding and I'm running my businesses, which I was all the snowboard, you know, guys that I rode with yeah. all respected. And then I had this financial business, which they had no, they're just like, I don't get it. They don't, they didn't understand that. So I'm doing all this stuff at the same time. And you have to imagine, like, I was kind of at a breaking point. I was doing too much, but I was still doing it. And in 2008, doing super well, I started flipping a couple houses because why not? And then I got this next big idea. You see, my head, my main store, my lease came due. And I, mm. I, there was two buildings down was this dilapidated paint store. One of those buildings that you see that you're like, they should really tear that building down. And I'm like, I'm going to buy that. I'm going to buy that building. I'm going to convert it into a strip mall. I'm going to move my store into 4,000 square feet. I'm going to rent the other two spaces and they're going to pay my rent. And, you know, that was my dream. Well, my, I was a big visionary and a big dreamer. I mean, everything in my life was always like, you can in dream, mm -hmm. you dream of it. Then you almost manifest it. And then you just chase it until, until you get it. You, and it takes a lot of no's. So, this required $360,000 to, to buy this building and renovate it. So I didn't have 360 because I just, I spent the money I made, but right. I found somebody <laughs> that's a hard money lender that, that lent me the money. And, and I began the, the process of, you know, for the first time developing a, a property and it was going good. I got halfway through and you guys all know what's coming here. We're in 2008 and I knew that something was changing, but I just didn't know how it was going to look. Well, that little thing that I'm talking about was the big, great recession. And when that hit, it hit so hard. It was like me getting hit by a Mack truck at full steam ahead. And mm -hmm. at that point, everything came crashing down. I was literally, I kept using, so here's the thing. This is where I'm going to really start painting the picture of why I'm doing what I'm doing now. At this point, I kept using the same conventional knowledge I'd been taught. Right. I kept using the same conventional financial knowledge that I learned as an advisor. And I kept oh. using the same conventional real estate knowledge that I learned, you know, from flipping some houses and reading a couple books. But, you know, that there were things I didn't know. And mm -hmm. when this recession hit, everything crashed down. My retail stores plummeted 30 percent. My financial advisory business literally came to a screeching halt. I was working longer and harder than I'd ever worked and making nothing. And I got to the point where I was one payment away from being completely bankrupt. And that was a scary thing because I had, I had up to this point, like I had been a self starter. I had, I had not really needed to ask anybody for anything. I, I was making it. And then now all of a sudden, like I'm going to lose all of it. And it became very real. Not only that, this guy that I borrowed money from, I always call him knuckles from stage. He was a guy that you don't want to screw with. So if mm. I couldn't pay him back, I don't think he would have just taken the store. He might've taken a couple of fingers or an arm. So anyway, mm. what happened is there was one night I remember in the thick and thin of it, I was driving home from a long day and I just moved my beautiful girlfriend in my house. This was like my first 
maybe my second real girlfriend in my life. And, and I was into her. She was gorgeous. And I remember I got home and I had to, I had to look her in the eye and I had to say, sweetie, I need your help. I need your help paying the mortgage. I need your help paying the utilities. And that room right down there, we have to rent that out because I can't make it. I can't make things work. And most women probably would have been like, you know, Chris, I'm just going to show myself out, but not this one, not this one. You see, I think she kind of liked me because she ended up marrying me and we, we made it through that period. I literally, I don't know whether, you know, your listeners believe in God or a higher power of just the universe, but sometimes when you're at your very lowest point, a door opens. And if you, it's your choice whether you're going to walk through that door or not, but that door opened for me. And I'm not going to go into that story because I don't want to waste time on it, but let's just say that will happen for everybody. When you're at your lowest point, when you think there's nowhere else to go, something will present itself. It's your decision whether you walk through that door. And I did. I walked through that door and I made it through that period of time. Barely. I literally, I escaped bankruptcy by the skin of my teeth is the easiest way to, to put it. Wow. I just barely. And I was determined. I, at this point, I was still determined. I wasn't willing to quit. And I knew the only way to fail was to quit. So that wasn't in my cards. And one of my biggest idols because of the financial business I was in was Warren Buffett. And Warren Buffett always preaches buy low. And, and, and at this point, I watched real estate values plummet. Now, I, I, I wasn't like a big flipper. I wasn't a big real estate investor, but I just saw this happening. I saw people losing properties. I saw people, you know, not being able to sell. And I had this realtor friend and she presented opportunities to me all the time. And finally, I walked, I, I took the bait. I, I took the opportunity and I started buying apartment buildings. Now, this is 2009. Okay. So from 2009 to 2014, I bought dilapidated buildings. I was still doing the financial business. Now, in 2010, so you know, that whole lifestyle culture, the fat man store, Uh that had really hurt me and I had to sell the store. So I had an opportunity to sell the business to a family and and I was going to sell it to a big corporation that wanted to gobble me up for market share, but I ended up selling it to a family of snowboarders that I competed against that I liked a lot. And, and I held paper on it. It was a risky thing, but they, I knew that they would keep that culture and that dream alive. And, And still to today, Fat Man Board Shops is still open today. It's still operating. It's still feeding off the same culture. The the owner and his son, they're, they're, he's a pro snowboarder. He he lives in Bre- it, It's me reinvigorated in a totally different way. But awesome. that store is still open, just so that you guys know. I'm no longer part of it. I sold it in 2010. But by 2014, like I had kind of climbed my way back out of it, still snowboarding. I was kind of at the tail end of my career. Now my my snowboarding career is kind of petering out. Like I, I had some injuries and I just was having a hard time handling it all and winning and doing all the things that it were required. But by 2014, I had 36 units, you know, under, under management and I thought I was making it. And then all of a sudden I realized I was in trouble again. I was literally in trouble again. And, and I peeled the onion and I'm like, Oh my God, like I, I kept using that same conventional knowledge. I was over leveraged. I was under knowledgeed, and, and I realized like I was living paycheck to paycheck again. Me and my wife were, we were living paycheck to paycheck again. I'm still making a lot of money in the financial world. Like there was no way I should be here, but the thing, the reason this happened. Okay. And, and this is an important takeaway because 
everybody, if I just painted a picture to you and I just said, okay, I'm making a couple hundred thousand as an advisor, I've got 36 rentals going, like, you know, you would just think you're making a ton of money, which gross income I was, but what I didn't no, what you're making, understand. What you keep. Exactly. I didn't understand how money really worked. And you see, at this mm. point, I didn't understand money in real estate. So I was just borrowing from the bank. I was taking conventional loans out on all these places. I was putting 20% in for the down payment. Plus I was paying closing costs and then I was paying for the renovations. Cause remember these buildings were, these buildings need to work. And then, you know, I would, I would renovate one unit and I would do a lot of the work myself. And then I'd rent that out and I would take the rents and I would start renovating the next unit. And I just kept doing this. Well, by 2014, when I was back to living paycheck to paycheck, I hit the financial wall. Now, you guys probably don't know what that is, and I'm not going to go deep into it, but with banks, you see, you think that you can buy as many properties as you want, you know, but what yeah, is no. the reality is, is they you say you can buy 10, two or but three I'll something. tell you right now, exactly, because you hit the debt ceiling, right? You hit the debt to income ceiling. No matter how hard you try, no matter how much income your properties are making, you if you don't understand how it works, you will hit the ceiling. Well, I did. And when I did that in 14, they froze all my credit. They, they wouldn't mm. give me any more mortgages. My lines of credit got peeled back. Some of them got frozen. Some of them got stopped. Now, folks, this is not because I wasn't making payments. I was making all right. my minimum payments. It right. wasn't because of that. It was because, because the bank looked at me on my... Correct. Just, they looked at me in my annual review and they said, oh, this kid, is he's going to be screwed. So in 14, mm. I had to make a hard decision. I had to sell all 36 units. And then that wasn't the worst part. I had to sell our dream house. Me and my wife had bought our dream house. It was beautiful. And we had renovated it. And we didn't, we didn't get to stay there very long, a year and a half or so. And we had to sell it. And that was a huge hit. It was a hit on a relationship. We went through some really hard times. And I was, a, I was down in the dumps. You can only imagine. I was literally down in the dumps. And the next thing that happened is I, I remember in the mail, I got a postcard. I got a postcard inviting me to come to this seminar to learn how to flip houses. Now, I know what your audience is going to think when they're hearing this. You're going to be like, dude, man, don't you ever freaking learn? Well, you know, the truth of the matter is this. I got that postcard, and I was so humbled by my failures up to this point, I had nothing to lose. And by going to this seminar, they were giving away a free iPod shuffle. I didn't have money to buy an iPod shuffle, and I was a runner, so I wanted this darn thing. So I had nothing to lose, and I had iPod shuffle the game, so off I went. Day one of the this, this seminar, nothing special. Day two, day two, everything changed. And it didn't change because of a bunch of stuff that I learned. Because I was, I was kind of a bit egotistical. I was like, I've done this. I, they can't teach me anything new. But by day two, here's what I learned. They had these speakers in, these money guys. And they were very successful. They were, they were wealthy. They were crushing it in the real estate game. And their story talked about what they were doing with money and how they were doing it. And I had this aha moment, this realization that what these wealthy people were doing was the complete opposite of what I was doing. And I then had the second realization. I'm like, wait a second, I'm a high level financial advisor and I've never been taught this stuff. Why wasn't I taught this stuff? And then I realized they don't teach this stuff. This is that financial knowledge that you need to seek out because no one is ever going to teach you this because there's no incentive for them to teach you this. There's no money in it for them, for them to teach you how money really works. And at that moment, at that moment, I remember I came home and I went on this 
unbelievable transformational journey. I was, I went from boohoo me, boohoo everybody. You know, the economy brought me to my knees. You know, it's all the economy's fault. It's all everybody mm-hmm. else's fault. And I, I went to realizing that it's not, the problem wasn't the money. The problem wasn't the economy. The problem all along was the misinformation that I was taught, the misinformation that I had been given all along. That was the problem. And what I needed, the, the, the valuable financial knowledge, that was what was missing. And at that time, I dove in so deep. I racked up my credit cards. I maxed out credit cards to the point where I had like $24,000 balances on my credit cards. With minimum payments, I could barely afford. And that was done so that I could have access to these people, so that I could be in front of these people on a one-to-one or a group setting. And I could ask them the difficult questions of, how did you learn this? How did you figure this out? How are you doing this? And how do I do this? And that point was a couple of years, right? This is 2014. This was the most transformational period of time in my life. I traveled to seminars. I became a, a, just a sponge. I read books. I went to every seminar. We didn't have podcasts back, but anywhere I could get info was mostly seminars. I was there. I paid for training. I started learning that I needed to invest in myself. And that's what I did. I started investing in myself and going to be in front of these people. And I developed these relationships with these people, not because I was some rock star, but because I was willing to do whatever it took. And I was willing to give my time to serve them, to do whatever they wanted me to do. If they wanted me to promote their event, damn it, I promoted their event. If they wanted me to come to an event and be a testimonial speaker for what they did, I was there on my own nickel. I did whatever it took. And I started to learn the secrets of the wealthy. And in learning the secrets of the wealthy, what I also started doing is I started like changing my life from having money and then going broke, having money again, and then losing it all again. And, and, you know, I would ask your audience and yourself, how many people have you ever known in your life that have had money and then it's gone and then they get it again and it's gone. We all know people like that. Right. And it's not because of, it's not so much because of, you know, things they're doing in their life. It's because the system, what they've been taught about how money works is wrong. And, you know, when I speak from stages, I tell people this. I say there's the five percenters, right? And then there's the other 95%. I can help the 5%, the people that are willing to understand that they need to believe that there is another side, and there is. And that's what I learned. I learned that what the wealthy do with money was the complete opposite of what I did, and it was the complete opposite of what I had been taught to do for, at that point, probably 12 years in the financial world, what I was taught to do and what I was taught to sell and teach my, my clients was the big lie. So from that point on, I started, you know, me and my wife started the real estate company and we, we were just went into it. Just like my financial world, I, was, I, I became the rock star. I, we were flipping a ton of houses. We were wholesaling houses. We were building a rental. We were just going full force in and it wasn't easy. Literally, I think my hair started turning gray during this period. My hair started falling out like I was just so consumed with this and I was still doing the financial world, but I had kind of slowed off that a little to focus on the real estate. And then we got fixated on, we saw Tark and Christina get on stage and we got fixated on, we got to have our own TV show. And I said to my wife, I said, if we're ever going to be on that stage in front of an audience, like these people that we admire, we have to have a show. So we began in 2014 and 15 to go down the path of what does it take to have a TV show? And we, we hired one of the guys from my store, Kyle, who had gone on to create his own film company because of what he did at Fat Man. 
And I hired him to create our pilot. And literally the, the beginning concept of the, the business or the um, TV show was called Flip Out. And it was literally jackass meets flip or flop. We would go into the houses, demo them with our, my old skate team from the shops. And they would take the material from demoing the house and they'd build ramps through the house. It was awesome. It was such a great concept, right? But but we took that idea. We we did it. We we spent forty grand filming this, and and we got our our sizzle reels, and we sent them out to producers. We got picked up right away by a producer, and then the producer took it to HGTV and all the networks. And again, just like earlier in my life when I was asking for money, we heard no. We heard it's a it's a great concept, but it's too risky. It's too outside the box, and and there it was. It died on the vine right there. And the producer, our contract ended, and here we were, we had this unbelievable idea. We're still doing the flips. We're still doing all that, you know, trying to get in to make, you know, to meet, but it was just a huge cash cow that your huge cash draw trying to do that many houses. And then all of a sudden we, we took our idea and I sent it out to a couple of friends that I had met in the industry. Some of these rock stars that I had met and they gave it to a different producer. That producer said, Hey, I love what you guys are doing, but it's just too, outside the box. So let's take your idea and let's put it in the box and let's make this happen. And, and it was this, we're in 2019 now. So 2017 and 18, we got picked up. HGTV loved it. They, they took us through the whole process. And for those of you that think the people that have TV shows, it's just like, you know, you send a video to them and they're like, Oh, we love you. Great. We're going to put you on TV. <laughs> Absolutely not. You guys, no, right. Absolutely not, not. This was a four year journey and it was a hard one, but Last year we aired and we aired, actually, I think it was last year. I'm starting to lose track of time, but we aired on HGTV six times and everything was going great. We were the number two rated show coming out of Greenlight and we had huge ratings. We, everything was like looking like, oh, you know, if you're, if you can picture a rocket ship, our rocket ship was on the pad, the, the rockets were lit. We were ready to go. We were in the final countdown. And then like at that point, we got the call. I got the call. And they said, you know, Discovery had just bought HGTV and they're changing things around. And right now they said they're going to pass on the show because they're not doing any new shows. So the rockets were lit. They were ready to launch. And then all of a sudden somebody hit the cancel button and that was it. Show was done. Like we, we had aired six times and the dream was over. So at that point in my life, again, you know, things were good. I really started understanding money. And at this point, I hadn't started talking and telling people about it. Well, actually, I did, but not in a way. I had created an education company called Flip Out, which you mentioned. And we were doing really well coaching people on how to flip, how to build rentals. But I wasn't teaching money because I couldn't because I had my, my financial advisory practice. Now, this is last year, October. I retired from the financial world because my broker said, you're either going to be a TV show star or you're going to be an, an advisor pick. Well, I picked the TV show, so I retired and sold my practice there. So that was the end of the financial world. Like that money was gone. So now I literally had burned the boats. And now the boats, after they'd burned, now my show, my booster rockets, they're dead. We're not taking off anymore. We're like, all right, guys, you guys can, you guys can get out of the spaceship now. You guys have been up there. I'm sorry. Like, but you're not going to space. So get out of the ship. Get, come on. And that was like... Uh I felt like, do I drive my truck into this tree as fast as I can? What do I do? How do I tell my wife we're not, we didn't get the show. This is our dream. And again, in life, you know, at this point I came home, I told her, but my phone rang, my phone rang. And it, this is one of those calls that change your life. Kind of like that postcard, even though that postcard was nothing special, but you see what that did for me. That, that phone rang and it was my friend, Greg. Now my friend, Greg was one of those rock stars 
right, that I met early on in 2014, he was that guy that taught me how money worked. And Greg, I, at this point, I'd been borrowing a lot of money from Greg, and I actually had a business venture I was doing with Greg, and he called me just to tell me, and this is right after I had heard that our show wasn't going. And he had called me to say how excited he was to be partners with me, how happy and excited he was on the things we were going to do, and on and on. And this whole time he's talking, I'm not even hearing it. Guys, I'm not even listening to what he's saying because I'm just thinking to myself, somebody called Greg and told him we didn't get in the show, and now he's trying to make me feel good. Boo-hoo, Chris. Like, I get it. Thank you for the call, but it's not necessary. I'm just going to go, like, crawl up in a ball and, like, cry myself to sleep. But then I said to him, I said, Greg, you know, did somebody call you? He's like, what do you mean? I'm like, no, no, no. Did, did Larissa call you and tell you what happened? No, Chris, what happened? Are you everything okay? Greg, really, seriously, somebody called you and told you, like, that we didn't get the show, right? He's like, no, absolutely not. I, I had no idea. Now, at that point, I realized that this call was not one. It was just not a random thing. This call was meant to happen because I was at the bottom again and I needed to be picked back up. Well, at that moment, I became I, I understood what my calling was. My calling was to go out to the world and to teach people how money truly works. The, this true way money works, the secrets of the wealthy, not the big lie not Mm. wall street, not the big lie we're taught. I teach, you know, I realize I have to develop a a curriculum and I have to basically come up with a way to teach people without selling people. I don't want to sell people because at that point I'd gone to all these seminars and every one of these seminars I went to, it was a big pitch fest. You go there and you felt dirty. You leave and you just felt (laughs) dirty. You literally felt like you had to take a shower because Oh my God, I, I, who's going to sell me something now? Now who's going to pitch another program that's going to change my life? I didn't want to be that guy. I simply wanted to go out and I wanted to teach people the truth. The things that I had learned, the things I wish I had learned a long time ago, that when I learned them, which was kind of too late, I wished I had learned them earlier and I wanted to teach that to people. So that is what gets me to where I'm at now. So I set the goal and this is a huge bar, right? But if your dreams don't scare you, they're not big enough. So I put the title on my new role as America's number one money mentor. That is a huge, huge thing to fulfill, right? But that is my mission. I want to be America's number one money mentor. I want to be that guy, kind of like almost Robert Kiyosaki, but without the, I'm not going to say anything bad. I love him, but he went, <laughs> but down, he went Chris, down the wrong path. Chris Nuggle. Chris, instead, instead of your own, of your own, right? Like him, but your Correct. own version. And I wanted to do yeah. it the right way. For you. Exactly. Yeah. And, I, and that's what I do now. Today, I travel. The, I travel. I, I say the, I can't say the world, but I, I do speak in Canada, but I, mostly the U.S. And I travel every single week and I do webinars and I speak on the secrets of the wealthy. And I have three, actually, it's four wealth principles that I teach. And the first thing I say from stage after I do my introduction and kind of do my story in, in eight minutes is I tell them, I'm not here to sell you anything. I'm simply going to teach you this 200 year old system so that you can transform your life. And when I say that, everybody's so used to being sold, I got the whole audience listen. And then I take them through this journey and it's an hour long talk that I do. And literally at the end of it, people just physically can't believe it. Because here's the thing, guys, what I teach is not complicated. It is not something you need an advanced degree in finance. You see, as a financial advisor, everything I did was complicated. Everything was designed to be like this algorithm, this complicated thing. And you know, folks, that's for a reason. 
they don't want you to understand it because if you understood how simple the prince, the, the secrets of the wealthy are and what you do, you wouldn't need all this complicated stuff, but because they make it so complicated, you need to pay them. You need to buy their products. And that's the institution. That's the big lie. What I teach is principles that are so freaking simple that everybody can apply them. Everybody can use them. But the hardest thing is the hardest thing. And I tell this right in the beginning of my talk is it's so simple that you are going to see it and you are going to say, no way. It's too good to be true. And you're right. Oh. It sounds too good to be true. So it must be too good. And then your, your friends are all going to say, no way, man, that's too good to be true. That's a scam. You know, you're going to, that's what people are going to tell you because your whole life, you listen to people that have never done things right. But you take your advice from people that have never done what you want to do. And we're just, that's just the reality. We're okay with that. And it's always the people closest to us. And that defies where we are. And that's why we, we continue to keep trading hours for dollars. We continue to work in jobs we hate, making not enough money. We continue to struggle. And we continue to be middle class when you don't have to. Warren Buffett says it best. Now, you guys might hate me for saying this. And, and you might not like Warren Buffett for saying this. But it's the truth. I'm going to say it. Warren Buffett says, if the poor people would just do what the wealthy people do, they wouldn't be poor anymore. And, and folks, that is the truth. But here's the reality. Will Rogers says this. Will Rogers says, the problem in America is not what people don't know. The problem in America is what people think they know that just ain't so. Mm. That is your problem. That was mm. my problem because I thought I knew what I didn't know. Where the real problem is right, or the real answer is right under your nose. You just have to think different. You have to believe that there is a way. And then once mm. you figure that way out, you have to be consistent and persistent in doing it. Because I, I, when I talk about this, I talk about, the backward bicycle and every one of you should after you're done listening to this you should google the backward bicycle it's a youtube video and watch that and it's not the video oh, of that messes with their brain their brain paralyzed yeah they can't really understand it because it's yeah i've seen that i think i've seen that video it's smarter everyday guy does it where he has a bike that operates Absolutely, backwards yeah. and it, it it takes deliberate training because his brain so outside the norm that he he doesn't get it right away and it's a great that's uh, a great example of when yeah. you don't know what you don't know. And until you have a new paradigm, a new way of thinking, like you can't fathom, you can't fathom what you can't fathom. Like you can't see what you can't see. And that's a great example. Learning this backwards bike is a great way to try to treat, teach yourself what it's like to be new at something again. Cause as we get older, a lot of us, we avoid that and we isolate ourselves down these little silos of where we're good and where we're experts and, you know, and where it's comfortable. And that's why they say you want to get outside your comfort zone even because, you just don't want to isolate yourself. Isolation is terrible, right? Like you said, you had to get out there and you have to learn this stuff. Chris, if people want to find out more, if people like, they want to go hear this talk, they want to know what you're like, the details of what you're talking about, where do they go to get this stuff? Sure. I have a free webinar that everybody can watch. And all they do is they go to money school, R E I.com slash T M M M, which stands for the money multiplier method. So money school, R E I.com slash T-M-M-M, and you can watch, it. it's a little over an hour, and you can learn everything that I just talked about that I teach from stage, or, you know, I'm all over social media. I mean, Instagram, you can find me, it's Chris underscore Noggle, Facebook, you know, Chris Noggle on there, you know, I, and I'm mm, putting out, mm. the thing about what I do is I put out so much free content. Literally, sometimes people are like, dude, you got to stop putting out stuff because you're giving away everything for free. Mm, and I'm like, that's mm. the point. I'm going to give everything away for free. I'm going to give it all to everybody because you know what the fact of the matter is? I could give every secret I know out for free 
and there's only a very, very small percentage, a fraction of a percent that will ever do anything with it. Everybody will devour the information, but the problem isn't so much the knowledge that everybody thinks that they need. It's not the knowledge, guys. It's the application of the knowledge because uh, you can know it all, but if you don't take action on it, if you don't apply the knowledge, it's not going to be, it's never going to work. I mean, most uh, people listening to this probably had a, a foreign language you learned in school, right? How many of you still speak that foreign language? Because I know me, I took four years of Spanish, and all I remember is no hablo español. That's all I can say. So it's because I didn't apply the knowledge. But what you just said is exactly true. The backward bicycle is no different than your lives. We get stuck in habits and patterns because we're taught things work one way. And then all of a sudden, in life, you're going to get thumped on the head every once in a while, and you're going to learn that things don't work that way. They really work this way, but you've got to change your thinking and you got to change your habits and your patterns to a completely different way. And that's hard. So mm-hmm. I tell people from stage, all you have to do in your life to be wildly successful, to take control of your life, to pay off your debt, to, to literally take back control and take back your money and your family is change one thing. And everybody's like, Chris, I can do that. That's easy. Change one thing. It is the hardest thing in the world for you to change because you got to change the way you think. And once mm-hmm. you do that, it is easy. Then you just follow the system. Them. And it's what the wealthy do. It's what banks do. It's what they've been yeah. doing for hundreds and, of years. The, I didn't create what's this. The URL again? What's the URL again? Sure. It's moneyschoolrei.com slash the money multiplier methods. Not, but T-M-M-M, just the initials. The money multiplier. Moneyschoolrei.com slash T-M-M-M. Perfect. Chris, thank you so and much I've got for a, coming. You know, I've got the podcast and the book, too. Yep, yep. Chris, thank you. Sorry for cutting you off. Thank you so much for joining us today. It's been an honor and pleasure. I'd love to have you back on because I feel like you've got so much more to share. You've got so much more of your story to unfold. And there's been some great nuggets. People listening to this, they may, if they didn't have a pen and paper, they may want to go back and listen to this again and make sure to take notes because there's a lot of value in here, some really key insights that I think can help people that might be struggling right now. And so, Chris, thank you for coming and sharing with us. I know you have your own podcast. I know you have your own following. Thank you for coming and sharing with us, and I look forward to chatting with you again soon. Hey, thank you so much. It was an honor. You've reached the end of our interview. Now, first, let me thank you for listening. I appreciate and respect you more than you'll ever know. And now I'd like to ask you a couple of questions. First, what three lessons did you just learn? What three aha moments just jumped out at you? Second, What can you implement for yourself and your business in the next 24 hours? Third, what can you give to someone else to help you with or give them to just do it for you? Whatever it is, remember taking action is the secret sauce to results. Now, if you think this interview would be helpful for a friend, please give them a link to it. It'll help them and it'll help me too. I'd also like to invite you to help me find out more about the challenges you're facing, your dreams, your goals, and how I can help you overcome what's holding you back. We both do better when we know better, and your success is my success. So please reach out and interact. You can visit our website, bestbusinesscoach.ca for Canada or California, where I'm from and where I'm living. You're welcome to also try out one of our paid programs. You can find us on YouTube, Facebook, and pretty much every other social media channel you can think of. You should also subscribe to the podcast. And if you're enjoying them, please leave us a nice review. It really helps. That's all for now. Once again, thank you. Take care of yourself. And remember, the world needs the best business you can build. And I believe in you.